From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Jesus, here we go. <laughs> and this is a special extra episode. I've gathered the panel together. Okay, I got up this morning and... The night after the Indiana primary results, which has finally settled the thing that we've been talking about for about four months. Yes. What an odd day it is to be white American. I have a, such a mixture of emotions. On the one hand, I feel like I'll be allowed back in the country if I so desire. On the other hand, I would beg you not to send me. <laughs> and the event that we've been speculating on, thinking was going to happen, wasn't going to happen, changing our minds about has come to pass. Aaron, your country, or a part of your country, has chosen as the Republican nominee for the great office of president, Donald Trump. We are almost certain. How do you, how do you feel about that? Uh, I have a mixture of emotions. The first thing I wanted to say is, if you allow me to make enough predictions about who a party's candidate will be, I will eventually make an ass of myself. I I had predicted Trump initially in the podcast, and then I, last uh, time we met, went for the very high degree of difficulty routine and said, you know, Ted Cruz after the nth ballot because of uh, Trump's inability to slot in uh, preferable delegates. And that turned out to be entirely... You overcomplicated the picture. I overcomplicated, and it also shows that there is probably no correlation between your ability to pick basketball game winners and your ability to pick uh, presidential candidates. That said, because this has been a distinct possibility for a long time, I think I'm feeling a little bit less shocked than I would have been otherwise. Certainly, if you told me this a year ago, you would have had trouble getting me up off the floor. But I've had enough time to adjust now where I feel like this is a part of reality that accept might be too strong of a word is plausible. That's a more fitting adjective. But, but shouldn't we be more shocked? I was thinking about this as I was coming into work this morning, that we've become acclimatized to this as a possibility. But shouldn't we try and take ourselves back to a year ago and try and think about just how shocking it is because that's the thing we're living in these slightly peculiar political times we'll come on to Corbyn a bit later but we get very quickly used to things that not that long before we would have said were impossible and this one is it's still impossible but it's happened I don't tell me how I meant to process it um, how you were meant to process it. Well, we can kind of go back to some of the themes we've been talking about for a long time. I mean, this was an unusual election, not only because, in a way, the election of Barack Obama, the first uh, African-American president in 2008, created kind of unusual times uh, given the country's racial history, but you had this long kind of ideological sorting of conservatives into the Republican Party and liberals into the Democratic Party, combine this with kind of long-term dog-whistling racism about law and order and welfare queens and things like this, and then fears about immigration, terrorism, the other, so on and so forth. Combine that with a new media environment where somebody who is a reality TV star and is independently wealthy and is on Twitter at seemingly all hours of the day and is the color of some mutagenic pumpkin, right, can get a a large amount of attention. And you really have so many different interacting variables that, as one of my professors once said, God gave rocket scientists all the easy problems, right? You can kind of in retrospect say, well, yes, all these different factors percolating over the decades made this possible. And in retrospect, we can make some hay of it. But you're right, to go go back a year and if I were to lay this all out, you would just look at me like a, a, a crazy person and discount what I had to say. I kind of agree with you, Aaron, but I also think if you go back right to the beginning and you look at the people who said that this is possible, 
that actually you shouldn't dismiss the possibility that Trump could be the candidate and could win this um, nomination. It was those people who considered the Republican nomination process and indeed American politics more generally in terms of class rather than in terms of race. They're the people who've been vindicated in terms of their predictive power um, by what's happened. There weren't many of them, but there were a few of them. And I think that if you looked at the conditions of the American economy and put the personalities out of it and then said, okay, what kind of presidential contest would you expect to have under these kinds of economic conditions? You could predict the rise of somebody like Donald Trump to the Republican nomination. So how ugly is this going to get now? Because so it's maybe it's class, maybe it's race. It's probably a mixture of both. I don't think, Helen, you're saying that race didn't play a part in this. And we've been chortling along as the Donald has one by one slain his little dwarf-like opponents with a killer nickname, Lion Ted, Little Marco, Low Energy, Jeb. I forgot, there are so many of them. Crooked Hillary. Well, this is the question now. So now it's presumably going to get a lot uglier and a bit less funny because, first of all, in his dismissal of his Republican opponents, race didn't play much of a role, but it will. It still looks like, though she lost in Indiana last night, that Hillary is certain to win the Democratic nomination. And we now know that she has won it partly because of her very high levels of support among African-American voters. Finbar, he's not... It's Donald Trump. He's not going to leave any of this alone. He's going to leave nothing alone because everybody who is around him gleefully says he's unscripted. He's unprogrammed. He comes and is straight-talking. Straight talking for me is code for whatever he senses in the room is going to get him the best reaction because I slightly disagree on the idea that you could completely predict this on class because um, the idea was going around that most of the voters in the early period for Trump were those who were less well off, those who had lower income. And that's not actually the case when they look back at the numbers in the recent primaries, he's getting votes across the board in terms of income. Um, So yes, the conditions predict some of what you'd see in this, but I don't think it's clear just to say that those conditions predict Trump. Against Hillary Clinton, I think it's going to get incredibly ugly. I think he's going to reach for every single offensive weapon that he can find. And I mean offensive in both meanings. Um, He's going to go after race. He's going to go after gender. He's going to go after the idea of an empire being built by the Clintons and the Bushes and that he needs to knock that down. Whatever he feels he can throw into the mix to stir up and agitate. Because for me, actually, what this boils down to is that the race became entertainment. And if he thinks he can make it entertainment for the general, he'll do everything he possibly can and try and win an entertainment election rather than a real election. And he's going to go after on age as well. So Crooked Hillary, it hasn't, I don't think, been focus grouped. I imagine he came up with it himself. But it's a kind of pun, right? It's she's crooked and she's crooked. It's that sort of thought that this woman, as he keeps saying, she she's both corrupt and she lacks the stamina to be president. On the other hand, I think I'm right. He's slightly older than her. Is that right? And I'm guessing, so I haven't checked this, but I'm going to make a wild guess. If you add their two ages together, this is the oldest pair of candidates in the history of the Republic for president. I'm looking at Aaron. He's nodding sagely at me. I think this is probably right. Together, they add up to about 140. They're really old. So there's something weird going on here too. Why are politicians getting older? And it's not just something that's happening in the United States. One of the really interesting things about this country is that Jeremy Corbyn is now leader of the Labour Party. The news cycle in in the UK has been dominated by the egos of old men from the boomer generation, John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn, Ken Livingstone. 
there used to be this assumption that political parties would pick as their front men, and 20 years ago it was still almost always men, these telegenic 40-something-year-olds who had this sort of appeal that they could project on television, Tony Blair, David Cameron, William Hague, perhaps not so much, and then Bill, 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 Bill Clinton, Barack Obama feels at the slightly older end of that. Uh, but there really has been a turn against the hegemony of the 40-something-year-old politician, uh, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Jeremy Corbyn, Donald Trump. It's a real change, and it's a really interesting change, given the extent to which people thought that the generational politics were driven by stuff to do with television. We still live in an extraordinarily visual culture, uh, but old people are able to compete again. In general, I think that's healthy. Um, it means you get some more experienced politicians bidding for senior office. Just in these particular cases, but it's when you less look at healthy. when you look at some of the particularly old people, maybe it doesn't look so attractive. And what's going on? Because they are, in large part, I mean, not exclusively, in large part, drawing their support from the young. I mean, the middle is being squeezed in a way. It's these sort of telegenic middle-aged people are still appealing, I think, to middle-aged people, but they're being squeezed out by this alliance of the old and the young. That seems to be the feature of politics now. And absolutely, and that was what people said at the rallies that Jeremy Corbyn held when he was uh, standing. In, in America, he would run, but in England, he stands for leader of the uh, Labour Party. People who went to the rallies said it was it was older supporters and younger supporters and very, very few people in their 30s and 40s in um, in, in middle age. And that's absolutely right. It's a very striking thing about what's going on. And in the American race, you see that in the discussion of um, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, that uh, older women support Hillary Clinton, younger women, younger people in general support Bernie Sanders. Uh, the, the age differences are really interesting. So, Aaron, how ugly do you think this could get? We'll come, we'll come back to British politics, which may be going to get quite ugly too, quite quickly. But so we're only we're less than 12 hours after discovering that although like you say we've been <laughs> slowly warming up to this but discovering that it is almost certainly going to be Trump against Hillary I don't know if you watched Obama's very funny turn stand-up turn at the uh, Washington Correspondents Dinner in which he said a lot of funny things and the one thing that made me laugh most but also was kind of chilling was when he said to the press corps you know good job you gave the Donald exactly the right amount of coverage you took his candidacy entirely on its merits you didn't inflate it at all and here we are he started out wanting to give a promotional push to his hotel business and now we're wondering will Cleveland get through July <laughs> I, okay my timing's not as good as his but it was a good line how ugly could this get? So, well, Cleveland will Cleveland be, will get through July. Cleveland will get through July. It will be certainly less ugly, I think, than if you had a contested convention, but it'll still be ugly because you will have a significant number of protesters, as you usually do at political conventions, but this will be more so than usual if Trump's experience in places like Chicago, which is vaguely similar to uh, Cleveland, apologize to both Clevelanders and Chicagoans who probably resent that statement, right? If that's any indication, this will be fairly contentious and hopefully not violent. But again, we've already seen that part of his appeal is a confidence that revolves around a willingness to use kind of coercive brute force as a way of dealing with people. I was reading yesterday, I actually can't recall, I believe it was Andrew Sullivan, right, who is saying that in some of Trump's appeals to say torture, where in the past 
torture has gone from this thing in the United States that was unthinkable to something that was a kind of necessary dark tool, as Dick Cheney said, to extract information on the war on terror, to now just kind of this thing of expressive politics, which shows that you're serious about dealing with people and you're willing to deter that you're a others. Winner. That you're a winner, right? And you don't care about political correctness as if torture used to be seen as something that's equivalent to, right, not using the correct hyphenated adjective for describing somebody's ethnic background. We're in a very strange space now where a lot of people are looking more for emotional appeals, I think, and kind of what I would call shallow symbolic representation of affect than they are for anybody with accurate policy knowledge, at least amongst a lot of Trump supporters. So that does not bode well uh, in terms of being willing to compromise or negotiate. But just going back to the Will Cleveland survive joke, the attention is oxygen for Trump. And if I was trying to foment some sort of opposition that actually highlighted just how ridiculous Trump is as a, as a presidential candidate, I would be saying to everybody, stay away. No protests. Silence. Give him nothing to play against. He loves having the rough and tumble of the protest of the person to remove and everything else. Take all the oxygen away. But it's it, too late no, to take the oxygen away. Uh, in that sense, in the sense of the <laughs> nomination, yes. In terms of the general, no. Just ignore him. Helen, we were talking about this earlier, trying to imagine what's the convention going to be like. Is it going to be the balloons and razzmatazz? Now it's not going to be contested. We know what a convention is meant to look like. It's a sort of rallying around the anointed pseudo monarch of the republic. They're not going to do. I just are they going to do the balloons? I, I find it very difficult to see that that's what's going going to happen. And I think one of the things that um, we've got to factor in now is is that you know a not insignificant part of the Republican Party at the top level, whatever you want to call it, in terms of the establishment, is going to support Hillary Clinton to win this election. I mean, it is unprecedented political territory that this is going to happen. But they are not going to reconcile themselves to having Donald Trump as the nominee. They may not now be able to do anything about it at the convention, but they're not just going to lie down. They are going to actively support, you can see that in what the Koch brothers have said in terms of donating to her, they're actively going to support Hillary Clinton's um, candidature. And that is going to have profound political consequences because in one level, what it does is, is to sustain Trump's critique of what is wrong with American politics in terms of its oligarchic aspects. It looks like the American oligarchy in action and that is going to be part now of this election. And I don't think you can turn the oxygen off. That's part of all, I mean, it's going to continue to be entertaining in that sense, but it, it is also going to be something that is going to actually give Trump some more momentum. So, Chris, this is where I'm now going to do a clumsy pivot back to Jeremy Corbyn, because this has also been an interesting week in British politics. There's been, the, as you mentioned, the old men saying inadvised, ill-advised things about Hitler row. I don't know how to call that anything other than that. Um, and we've got elections tomorrow in this country, mayoral elections in London, local elections around the UK, and the continuing drip drip of stories about how they're going to get rid of Corbyn in order to give themselves a chance of recovering their mainstream appeal, they being the Labour Party. So they are these two events that, again, Helen and I were discussing this earlier, the two unlikeliest events of our political lifetime have both happened in the last eight months, the election of Corbyn and now the nomination of Donald Trump. Um, But they're slightly out of sync. So we've reconciled ourselves to Corbyn in the sense that it's a fact. But the Corbyn story is now at that place where it's about what can the mainstream of the party at the top do to prize him out of office. And nothing's moved on that. They they keep colliding with this brute reality that they don't know how to do it. Do you think there's anything that could happen tomorrow? Any set of 
any sequence of events following the local elections or, or the Euro referendum that will allow the Labour Party to ditch this man who's leading them? I think the thing that would upset multiple apple carts would be if Sadiq Khan loses the London mayoral elections. I don't think he will. If you go by the bookmaker's odds, it has been as high as a 90, 90% plus chance for Khan to win the election. Now, it's, the last time I looked, it was down to 80-something percent chance. But lots of people think that Khan has got that election in the bag, that um, Zach Goldsmith's campaign uh, has been uh, divisive and unpopular, and that even if Khan can't squeak a, a win on first preferences, he'll get a lot of the second preferences from people who voted for Sean Berry for the Greens or Caroline Pigeon for the Lib Dems. And Zach Goldsmith's green credentials are going to count for nothing. And Zach Goldsmith's green credentials are going to count for nothing, given the campaign he's waged that's relentlessly drawn attention to the fact that Sadiq Khan is a Muslim and the attempt to link Sadiq Khan to various kinds of extremism, culminating in a really appalling article in the Mail at the weekend. I don't think Khan will lose that election, but if everything does go wrong, and if it turns out that the the row that's been going on about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, if that has an effect on damping down turnout, if it turns out that, contrary to expectations, the Goldsmith campaign does work, and remember that Linton Crosby is one of the people who's masterminding it, and on the whole, with the exception of the 2005 general election campaign in this country, he has quite a good track record. So I don't think Khan will lose, but if he does, I think there'll be the most God Almighty explosion in the Labour Party, because that's always been the the salve people have had, that Labour might lose a lot of council seats, they might come third in Scotland, they might do very badly in Wales, they might lose lots of police and crime commissioner. Nobody cares about police and crime commissioners. Um, Nobody but, even votes for police and crime commissioners. But what people say is that, you know, to do well, Labour has to win the mayoralty in London. I think they will, but if they don't, then that's when the shit hits the fan. And is there, just to bring these two stories together, and anyone can jump in here, is there a God Almighty explosion coming at some point? The Republican Party has been taken over by someone that the Republican establishment cannot stomach. The Labour Party has been taken over not just by someone, but by a group of people at the top and then a big membership surge at the bottom that a lot of the traditional Labour establishment, particularly the career politicians, cannot stomach. At some point, is something going to blow up? I mean, are these parties going to blow up? Total rolling silence. I will say this. One thing that's become very clear to me looking at debates, not only amongst kind of my friends, but the American public in general, is this trouble reconciling two facts about political parties is that they are neither fish nor fowl, right? They are both civil associations and they are at least in the UK and, and uh, the US and other democratic countries, right? They are democratic political institutions, right? They're a combination of these two things. And you see a lot of conflict over these two values because they're not entirely compatible, right? So for example, in the United States, complaints about superdelegates relate to the fact that, right, this is somehow anti-democratic. And you heard this from Sanders supporters a lot, even though now Sanders is pinning his entire strategy to possibly win the election on converting superdelegates. But superdelegates are representatives of parties, right? Specifically in this case, since they play a much role, bigger role in, in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party. And this is part of the liberal value we call freedom of association, right? We should allow groups to select their own leadership. On the other hand, there is something to be said for the fact that political parties 
bodies, which are the institutional mechanisms by which we select leadership, should reflect in democratic countries the popular will. And again, these th two things don't go together. And so you have these competing values. People are realizing, I think, more and more that you can't necessarily always have your cake and eat it too. And so you're getting really kind of big ideological disputes over what political parties should represent on the spectrum of liberal values. And a lot of it obviously is driven by self-interest and ideological motivation and who you would like to see win. But the veil has been taken off of some people's eyes, I think, especially in the United States, where there was this perception in the new primary era, right, that political parties now were these very democratic things, or at the very least, right, they were democratic, and they were also then tainted fairly heavily by big money. But now, right, there's more realization that in some ways the era of the smoky room never entirely went away. And frankly, some people are saying that's not a problem. That's the right of these organizations. And some people are saying that's awful and that's not the way our political system should work. And so it's creating a little bit of a, a crisis of confidence, I think, in the way we think about how people should be represented in government. And, and we fixate on the people who have been selected, nominated or elected Corbyn Trump. But the real issue is the people who have done the selecting and nominating. I mean, the real issue for the Labour Party is that put it back to the selectorate, the electorate in this case, and they are going to choose a similar figure. The people who have nominated Trump are not going away. Even if Trump goes away, they're not going away. And Helen, they're particularly not going away in a Hillary Clinton presidency in the same way that the Corbynites are not going away in a Boris Johnson premiership. So it's not so much about the people who are who end up at the top. It's what's going to happen, who's going to accommodate the anger of the people who are driving the process. I think that's a very important point. And I think also it's important to remember that there really is an important distinction to be made between the Trump phenomenon and the Corbyn phenomenon. The Corbyn phenomenon is generated by the internal dynamics of the Labour Party. Ultimately, the Trump phenomenon is generated by something much deeper about the nature of American democratic politics, about American economic and social conditions um, at the moment. And none of that American and economic, social, political conditions is going to change in a positive way. Indeed, it's pretty easy to see that the next time a presidential election comes around in 2020 is going to make this one look like a, you know, a picnic in the park in, in, in terms of... Um, ben Cleveland will burn. <laughs> what, in, in, ha, ha. In, in terms ha, of... Uh, and there was a hearty chuckle amongst the crowd. In terms of what, in, in terms of what um, might happen. And it's also happening a time in which, in geopolitical terms, the, America's position in the world, America's relations with its allies, not least Saudi Arabia, are in a, in a position of turbulence. It's incredibly difficult to see what um, is going to happen over the next four years. But you throw in a Hillary Clinton presidency into this, assuming that is what happened about which, as you know, I have significant doubts. But assuming for a moment that that is what's going to happen, you throw in a Hillary Clinton presidency into all this, and the groups of people who have voted for Trump and the fact that the economic climate is going to be probably significantly worse then than it, that it is now. I don't think it really bears thinking about what democratic politics looks like under those circumstances. Fimba, the other thing that we haven't talked about, so we're going to come back. These are, these are one-off little discussions as the things that we discuss get resolved in one way or another. And we will, I hope, come back to see what happens after the EU referendum. So we haven't discussed that much today, but that's the other thing that's going to shape um, British politics. And again, a similar issue arises here, which is, say, we do vote to stay in. There's still a large group of people who will have wanted to leave, who aren't going away, who aren't going anywhere. And politics has almost become now about who can best channel, not least because the anger is more vocal than the mild, resigned contentment. Who can best channel the anger? I mean, it's, it's, in a way, it's really hard to think of the scenario in which 
the more mainstream, telegenic, middle-aged, middle-of-the-road politicians come back and capture people's political imagination. It's just, I, don't, I can't think of any other way to put it, but it's a kind of race to the bottom in terms of anger and discontent, isn't it? Possibly, but I think we we may be slightly overplaying the idea that we're giving up on some alignment that people feel towards voting and they understand that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And for the EU referendum in particular, I'm, I'm slightly terrified that we are going to see a sequence of the improbable events and the events that lead us to dark places happen, that Trump somehow manages to become president, we leave the EU, Scotland goes off into another corner, there is a breakout of refugees coming through the Turkey border. I mean, you can put together a sequence of events which put us in an incredibly bad place. And that's what I'm more worried about. Whether or not we can manage to have a conversation which says, this is how we run our politics and we understand and we agree that when we vote, we don't get what we want. We've known that for a long time. So stop acting childish about it. And I think that that's the main thing for me. Don't act as if your politics is entertainment. Don't act as if you're just going to get your way by stamping your foot. I think actually overall, and this may be me being slightly grumpy post-Indiana, I think we all need to grow up a little bit about what's actually happening in terms of the politics. Finally, so there is that unfortunate sequence of events possibility, but it is much less likely than alternatives. Maybe one of those events will happen, but all of them happening still Remember seems to me... Remember all of our previous predictions. I know. Well, some of us have been right about something. <laughs> <laughs> Helen's been right. Mainly, yeah. uh, but in a way, the other thing I think it, that is worth thinking about is the likeliest scenario. And I still think the likeliest scenario is that we remain in the European Union. Hillary Clinton does become president. Scotland doesn't vote to leave the EU. But as Helen was describing, the, the politics underneath it doesn't go away. And it, it will have to come out somewhere, I mean, either an explosion or someone will channel it, or maybe the party system itself will start to fracture. I mean, that's the other possibility here, that we're talking primarily about first-past-the-post two-party systems that are under incredible strain. I mean, Chris, do you, never mind the question of when are they going to ditch Corbyn and so on, but is... And again, we've talked about this a certain amount, and it's hard to know how to answer it. But is the two-party system itself at a point where it could break in some way? I think in that, either country, in, US or in UK, this country, I think a lot turns on the Conservative Party. That I mean, what's striking about the last general election is that the Conservatives, contrary to an awful lot of expectations, including several round this table, including mine managed to win an overall majority by taking enough seats off an imploding Liberal Democratic Party. And it's true that there's a huge amount of anger swirling around, and that opens the space for a new populism on the left, and the, the situation facing an awful lot of young people in this country in particular uh, with uh, debt and the housing situation and the world of jobs and so on is pretty gruesome. But the Conservative Party is still able to get enough voters to the polls to defend that vision of defending the interests of people who are fortunate enough to own their own homes and are fortunate enough to have jobs and would like to see lower public expenditure and lower tax rates and so on. That Conservative electoral coalition is holding. And while it holds, then they can expect the other political parties to swirl around in chaos um, and for the crisis in the Labour Party to deepen. Um, but everything depends on whether 
the Conservatives can hold on to what they've got. And just to put in, the redistricting that's going to occur and the new constituency boundaries are going to cement the Conservatives' advantage. And so if that's allowed to go forward, you're likely to see this polarisation and a long reign for the Conservative Party. And that's why the question of the debate about Europe is quite so interesting, because there's been this split in the Conservative Party over Europe for quarter of a century now for the entirety of my adult lifetime, going right back to uh, Mrs. Thatcher's Bruce speech and to the debate in the Conservative Party over the Maastricht Treaty and the uh, John Major's uh, long-running battles with the people he called the bastards. And the referendum has been David Cameron's attempt to deal with that split, not to resolve it, but to find a way of trying to settle the question politically one way or another. We know from the experience of the Scottish referendum that referendum results don't always settle questions one way or another. And a lot turns on what form the division over Europe takes in the months after the referendum, whichever the result of the referendum happens to be. But I think if the Conservative Party can produce competent enough political leadership to hold their electoral coalition together, then we could be looking at the next 10 years being a bit like this of lots and lots of people very, very angry about the uh, current state of affairs and the Conservative Party chalking up um, regular wins in the elections that matter. The British electorate still doesn't like the Conservative Party much, but you don't have to like a political party to vote for it. One final question for Helen and another clumsy pivot. So if, if the Conservative Party can produce competent political leadership, do you think, given what we've just been talking about, are you going to miss David Cameron? Are you going to miss Barack Obama? <laughs> I don't really like asking, answering questions about uh, uh, Obama, um, as you know. And actually, just that's why I'm, I'm going to take the opportunity actually to go back though. Given that the last time you asked me an on the spot Obama question, I gave an answer that I didn't like, and I had much better answers since. The best thing Obama has done by far since he's been in office is the Iran nuclear deal, rather than anything else and um, and he is good at doing stand-up yes. i'm not going to comment that's on that. unarguable <laughs> i think um i think that if hillary clinton is the president and as i say i think that is a conditional if i can see certain things of the foreign policy that she might pursue where i might think obama was better and david cameron do you think you'll ever look back fondly over that golden time I think that Cameron's a, a hard one to talk about because he's just such an incredibly fortunate politician. If you go back to the, you know, the political world in which you and I grew up in in the 1980s, it, it's quite difficult to see you know, David Cameron even getting a senior cabinet position, I think, in terms of the kind of talent that the Conservative Party had available at that time. And yet here he is, it has to be said, one of the Conservative Party's most successful leaders in the circumstances. And I think he's a pretty dismal politician in any number of ways. But I think it's possible to imagine a Conservative leader, indeed Boris Johnson might be such a person, who just out of the sheer awfulness of the comparison might make one not nostalgic for David Cameron, but think, you know, there are levels of how bad things can be. So on that note, it, it is all relative. I think we have to remember that. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thanks to Helen, Finbar, Aaron and Chris. We will, I think, do this again well, if lots of unexpected things happen, we might reconvene every week. As, but assuming that things play out as we imagine, I think we'll try and get together again to talk about the results of the EU referendum and on beyond that. And again, people who listen to this, do please subscribe to our podcast so that you get these extra episodes and that we can keep you updated about our plans going forward. I hate that phrase, going forward. But there it is. Can we cut that out, please? <laughs> <laughs> Look at that again. Going forward to no, the end of yeah, days. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs>
do please oh, I can't remember what I said anyway <laughs> thank you for listening this has been Election the Cambridge Politics Podcast the world of the Donald is already yeah. in oh, no. No. nothing good can come of this <laughs>